This episode is dedicated to Stephen Hale, Zach Goldrosen, and Chris Klein for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. If you can spare a few dollars a month, consider supporting us on Patreon. Not only do you get access to bonus content, but you'll also be supporting this entire project from research, podcasting, outreach, networking, social media, MMA curriculum, future training collectives, and all of our different online groups. If everyone who follows us were to support us with even $1 a month, this project could actually sustain my living and make this the only thing I do. My co-host Paul was able to keep working throughout the pandemic. However, I was not so fortunate. I also have a family to consider. Many leftist passion projects like this one have disappeared because the creators eventually had to make a financial decision whether to continue or not. The pandemic has only accelerated this timetable. We all know fascists and right-wing chuds who are doing well right now. And many of us, especially in the martial arts, support them by buying and ordering their products, their matches, attending their classes, seminars, and so forth. So if the money is being spent anyway, let's keep that money circulating within the anti-fascist sphere instead. Low-key hating the fash is not the same as actively supporting your comrades. I'm not just talking about myself or Sapa. There are plenty of others who could use your support. There's actually enough of us to all support one another. We just never thought about it because we're just used to consumerism rather than active mutual support. We're also never going to be as popular as the right in the combat sports space. But we don't need to be. We just need solidarity among the numbers we already have. Sometimes we just need a reminder. Also, many of you were supporting the Sanders campaign every month. Well, he's out of the race, but we're still in the game. So we're once again asking for that financial support instead. I also recognize Many of you are also in difficult financial situations. And Paul and I appreciate you following us and telling your friends about us. If that's the only aid you can give, that's more than enough. This is Sam. This is Mylon. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have Mylan Tutusis. Mylan is Plains Cree Nakoda from the Poundmaker Cree Nation, located within the Treaty 6 territory. He's also an indigenous scholar, community organizer, teacher, activist, podcaster, and just an overall really insightful person. Hi, Mylan. Hey, how's it going? Let's start off with geographically positioning where the Poundmaker Cree Nation is for listeners so they can ease into this episode and unlearn their own worldview. Uh, Palmaker Indian Reserve is actually in Saskatchewan, Canada. So we're in the middle of Canada on the Northern Prairie, um, north of Montana. Um, so that sort of gives you a, like we're smack dab in the middle. Uh, Treaty 6 territory is sort of how we refer to this territory we're in right now. Um, sort of like the very specific geopolitical context when we refer to our places as Indian Reserves or 
um, treaty territories. Give us the history of the treaty territories then. Why is it called Treaty 6? Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of history there. Um, um, for me to explain that, I guess we kind of got to jump in the time machine to explain that. It's basically that um, indigenous tribes, indigenous bands in Canada in particular, like just to situate that, that geographically, um, engaged in treaty making with the British crown. Um, some tribes also engaged in treaty making with the French and other European powers, but in particular in this region, in 1876, we came together to um, establish some sort of peace and diplomacy with the British crown. Uh, so that's what we refer to as Treaty 6 territory, this, this territory in this geographical region that does have this unique peace and diplomacy project that is um, that played out. And that's how a lot of my people in particular identify the territory as. Is that where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up here. I grew up in rural Saskatchewan. I grew up in Treaty 6 territory out on the prairie. I grew up on the reserve, um, Palmaker Indian Reserve. Some of your listeners may not be able to know that uh, in Canada we refer to them as reserves, but basically in the U.S. they refer to them as reservations. Um, so, yeah, I grew up on Palmaker Indian Reserve. Who are the Plains Cree Nakoda? Yeah, so the Plains Cree Nakoda were a band of um, uh, Plains Indians. I mean, the Cree territory and, and Nakoda territory um, overlap. Um, historically, my people have always sort of been um, a fusion of Plains Cree and Nakoda people. Uh, so Nahayopwatak in our language refers to us specifically as being uh, Cree Nakoda. Um, so we're Northern Plains people, um, horse culture people. Um, we'd be the most Northern Sioux tribe, and but also, I guess, the most Southern Cree tribe. We'd be, we, our traditional territory would be in Montana, um, North Dakota, Southern Saskatchewan. Um, but our oral histories link us to places that are further also. But in times of contact, you know, in recent 150 years, we've sort of been in the Northern Prairie, um, Northern Montana and Southern Saskatchewan. And I think this is probably another point of ignorance for a lot of us. When you hear a tribe's name and it starts with like Plains or something, right? Plains isn't necessarily part of the name of the tribe. That's like giving a regionality, like what part of the country or what area they were in. Is that right? Yeah. So like our tribe, our band, our people are are sort of in that geographical region, like the environmental region. Um, not necessarily like, um, it's not defined as as being like Plains Creek per se, just sort of gives a signifier that, oh, that's the band that exists in that specific environmental region. But Cree, like our language, is is a very um, widespread language. Um, you know, there's there's people speaking in Ontario, um, people speak it out, out east. Um, it's a vast language. Um, but specifically for us, you know, Plains Cree kind of refers to our dialect and our band and our kinship systems being tied to a specific Plains region. So for a lot of us who live in urban areas, we might not be familiar with what prairie or plains looks like. Yeah, so the prairie, I mean, that's part of my PhD research, too, is just sort of looking at prairie landscapes and how it's changed. Um, traditionally, it would be grassland. It would be... Um, it would be uh, hilly regions. So I think like if you think of like the classic cliche of like uh, the Dakotas, like North and South Dakota, um, Montana, you'll kind of get that feel of, you know, grasslands and vast territories, um, not much trees. But when you get into the northern prairie, um, it's similar, but we kind of are closer to the boreal forest. Uh, so we're kind of like on a forest prairie fringe area. 
Um, there are trees that are poplar, but it's basically defined as grassland, as um, natural prairie gra- grassland at one time. But now today, it's been sort of um, um, re um, reimagined. It's sort of been colonized to be more so settler colonial agriculture landscapes. Are the plains kind of a type of prairie? Um, yeah, like if you get into like the biology of it, there's going to be plants that grow in certain regions and things like that. But I mean, ultimately, it just kind of refers to that grassland territory. I think in context to like history, um, it would refer to like the image of um, Native Americans on horseback or Native Americans with the beadwork, um, Native Americans tied to, I guess, like the Wild West genre. Um, so that's sort of like the geographical region that a lot of Plains tribe are tied to, but also the image in the box that we kind of get put into. What was life like for the Plains Creek Nakoda before the settlers? If we were to go back in a time machine, that is. Yeah, if we were to jump back in a time machine and I guess go to um, pre-contact Americas, I guess like the best way to explain it to your listeners is that um, there's a lot of research coming out now, like a lot of indigenous scholars and even anthropologists and archaeologists are sort of identifying that pre-contact Americas was vastly different than how, you know, the Western colonial historian tends to portray it in particular, even how Hollywood portrays it, right? Um, But traditionally, we were a land-based people. Uh, We did follow the buffalo migration north to south. Um, So that's why I say specifically our our region was vaster based off oral histories. We would go further south to follow buffalo migrations, and we would overlap and intersect with other traditional territories and and other tribes, territories, and land base. Um, But yeah, we were buffalo people. We were horse people. Uh, We still are in many ways, cosmologically and spiritually. We're still tied to those practices. Um, Yeah, and we were very um, sort of widespread in, in, in... I guess the Western part of Canada, but not only like Plains Cree people, but also Northern Cree. We were tied to um, the boreal forest. We were tied to the lake lands in Manitoba. Um, so there's Cree kinship and there's Cree dialects and there's Cree extended family systems that sort of um, um, exist all across uh, uh, Canada, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba area. Um, and again, and in, even into the U S we think of things as nation states, right? There's Canada, there's the U.S. and there's this border, but regions you're talking about, they existed before these borders. So for the Cree Nation, then how vast was it? Like how far north, south, east, west did it go? Yeah. So it, yeah, like you identify, you hit the marker on the head is, is sort of like the nation state and colonialism disrupted a lot of these um, geographical identifiers for our people. Um, uh, we were a transboundary people, so we exist transboundary across provincial state borders and, of course, U.S. and Canada border. But if you were to think about it in context to the Cree nation, it's tied to a specific like cosmology, philosophy, and a worldview. We share the same language. But out here in Saskatchewan, you know, we do have kinship, and um, um, Cree language extends all the way out to Ontario, um, to eastern Canada, to, to where we're at here. So it's a vast, widespread territory. But even just me identifying it as Cree territory kind of like has a little um, hangover of imperialism into it because it is also shared territories with other tribes too, right? It wasn't so clean cut. Yeah, it wasn't so clean cut. Like, you know, if you look at, open up like an anthropology textbook, it's going to identify all the names of bands and tribes in different areas. But the reality is, is that these regions are really fluid. Uh, we shared territories. We even shared sacred sites. We shared um, uh, migrations of, of, of uh, food systems and things like that. And there's vast trade networks. So, 
I mean, if you really looked at traditional territories in the Americas, it would be really fluid. It wouldn't necessarily be tied to one specific place per se. Um, so yeah, Cree Nation and our, our land base is pretty vast, but it's also a shared territory. Yeah, I think that idea in itself, from our colonial perspective, our Western colonial perspective is very alien, I want to say, which is uh, sharing territory, right? Because in our minds, we think of clear-cut borders, and this is our area, that's your area. And you could kind of have commerce, but it's not the same as sharing the land or shared ownership. Yeah, totally. Um, and that's that's really like one key um, aspect of pre-contact Americas is that uh, we do have like relationships and kinships through peace and diplomacy that identify relationships to a shared land and territory. Um, but yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, in the colonial Western paradigm, um, borders are clear cut and there's sort of like this um, dichotomy of ours and yours uh, fence lines, so to speak. Right. So even concepts of private property weren't necessarily uh, practiced. I mean, there was respect for territory. There was respect for land base and there was respect for entering other people's territory. Um, but ultimately, you can measure the histories of indigenous America through peace and diplomacy. Um, and, you know, when you look at like Western history, Western historians, um, they like to measure it through conflict. So like through wars, um, who were conquered, who are the conquerors. But peace and diplomacy in the Americas is one really unique aspect of indigenous histories that's really starting to sort of get developed in a written way. But it does exist in our oral histories time and time again. So instead of a conflict based view of the world and history, it's more of a peace and diplomacy based worldview. Yeah, definitely. For for my people in context to like our, our our relationship to treaty and our relationship to our cosmology and our philosophy, yeah, like there's definitely aspects of peace and compassion and kinship tied into our belief systems. Something you mentioned earlier was about following the buffalo, how your people were horse people, and also about migration. So then how are these borders affecting those movements now? Can the Korean Nakoda go back and forth from the US following traditional transborder kind of movement patterns that they had before or no now they're restricted well like in modernity definitely we can right but there was like a colonial um aspect to how our migration was uh disrupted obviously like the buffalo declined uh drastically so there wasn't much um buffalo migrations that were taking place so there wasn't much like um uh, access to food, right? There was a literal access to our aspects of our culture that we needed to. So we just sort of did get um, bogged down in this concept of um, settlement on both sides of the border. Um, but in particular, like when you look at our 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 migratory patterns, they were greatly disrupted simply but because our food systems were disrupted, our territories were disrupted. Um, today, yeah, we, we, we travel a lot. Like my partner's from Oklahoma. And, um, so what I spent a lot of time traveling into the U S not only for college, but also for like, um, traveling to powwows and different social gatherings and things like that. Um, but yeah, we could travel today. Um, a lot of people don't know that actually a lot of, uh, uh, indigenous people in Canada do qualify as dual citizens into the U S. So there's actually a J treaty that, um, the, ironically, the U.S. recognizes and is sort of a uh, hangover from um, the the wars in like 1800s, 1700s, where um, certain tribes allied with the U.S. and things like that. Uh, so they actually recognize Jay Treaty, it's called. Um, 
and we could actually we do technically qualify as dual citizens um so an interesting pattern is that a lot of people from canada who are indigenous tend to go to college in the u.s like i did i went through uh the j treaty process where you know i got my all like my social security number and all that stuff and yeah so we could travel back and forth and a lot of people tend to in particular the plains tribes like there's a lot of kinship still between uh north and south of the border so even under the Trump administration, it's still been relatively easy to go back and forth? Relatively easy. I mean, there is problems more so with um, like American Indians, like quotations, American Indians coming north with them having to go through immigration and visa processes. Um, but so far, it doesn't look like Trump's paid much attention to that. I mean, I have to double check and look into the details because I'm not down there as much as I used to be as a student. Um, but yeah, there's definitely like some sort of, um, there definitely is uh, transboundary relationships today that people tend to capitalize off of to get, you know, access to whatever exists on either side. And something you mentioned that I don't want to be glossed over is how not just creation of borders, but also the effect on habitat and food supplies that affected migratory patterns. Even if there were no borders, right? Just messing with the food and the land and killing off all the buffalo and basically extracting profit from the land, cutting down trees, dirtying the water, that in itself affects migration patterns. Yeah, totally. I mean, like just in general, like for me, I interpret that as 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 colonial violence still, right? Like the, the disruption of the the natural landscape. Not to say that like things were always perfect for indigenous people and we and we existed in this perfect state, but there was definitely like a project that existed in the Americas that was taken into account um protection of the environment, the environment as kinship, the environment as having agency and autonomy also. But also when you look at like you know, colonization and colonialism and Western expansion, um, in particular, even through like the industrial era in the U.S., you kind of begin to see how there was very aggressive projects that impacted landscape um, very aggressively, like just through the fur trade, through hunting, um, the buffalo um, being disrupted to the extent they were. Um, and again, just land grab, like just straight up like resource land grab. And this is pretty apparent in U.S. history and Canadian history is that there was a, a Western expansionist project that just wanted to um, reclaim the land for, for settlers and ultimately, you know, disrupt and displace the indigenous people that exist there. Even before capitalism, going back to just Western society and Christianity, there's this concept that existed, which is man versus nature man has to conquer nature. And there's evidence of this and history of this that goes way back. So capitalism, in a way, gave it steroids, but that already existed with the, the colonialist system that came over. And now we're both living in the aftermath of COVID and the quarantine and a life under a pandemic. And you think about that and how the whole thing started. It was man intruding onto the natural land and destroying the habitat and finding a new bug, right? Uh, finding a new virus. Now we really see what the worldwide global ramifications are. Indigenous people already knew, but now the world knows. Yeah, totally. Like if you just look at like Western history and, and for me, just to position this for me as an indigenous scholar, for me as like a Plains Creek Nakota scholar and, and person living here, my, my worldview may be different than other tribes or other indigenous people. But for me personally, I view the Western world as, as very problematic and it always existed in our oral histories and in, in our philosophy that, you know, there's a clash of paradigms that exist here. And yeah, like if you look at historically, like just Europe in general, 
like even going as far as to like ancient Greece and even like the Roman Empire, there was always this concept of of conquering, uh, ownership of the land and, and taking the resources to make profit. And yeah, that sort of translated even into like feudalism, right? Like literally feudalism was just like straight up, you know, the creation of kings and queens over a whole territory, um, which kind of screwed a lot of people over. And that project ultimately came across the ocean. And again, not not to like, say that you know conflict didn't exist in the americas but the flavor of it and you know the dynamic that existed in pre-contact americas was really different i mean um and again like there's there's data there's research there's some articles that are sort of highlighting um in its absence that you know peace and diplomacy was obviously a project because you had mass numbers of indigenous people living together you had you know thousands of people sharing a territory thousands of people sharing resources and there wasn't much disruption of those resources per se um, and again, I mean, we clash with anthropologists, we clash with like um, certain people about this academically and professionally because, you know, we have to exist as as some sort of savage barbarians that didn't have any sort of peace and diplomacy or governance systems. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just look at the data that keeps coming out around like the number of indigenous people in the Americas and it keeps changing, like the number keeps going up and um, it's going to keep going up. <laughs> like that's what we always say like our old people always say they're never going to figure out the number and it's going to keep going up and and it is and there's always archaeological evidence that's coming out that's always pushing back the date um because i mean you know the west is invested in the bearing straight theory they regurgitate that always it's almost like to the point now where it's just like a surface 100 level argument and just for people to follow along the bearing straight theory in common terms is what we know as the Lambridge theory between siberia and north america so how has that theory become a reactionary talking point? So the Bering Strait theory is, is used to almost like reinforce this concept of immigration, this concept of um, while you're not necessarily indigenous to this territory, you came here, you know, 15, 10,000 to 15,000 years ago. Um, you probably disrupted people coming here too. Oh, you did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you guys did the same thing. And, and you know, even like this whole this whole mass like extinction theory around where did all these, you know, um, ice age animals disappear to while all the native Americans killed them off at that point in time. Um, so like, you know, all these like assumptions that are sort of driven by racism and driven by, um, the justification of like, you know, the modern Western project, um, sort of like thrown into the face of indigenous people constantly. And it's also picked up, like it's picked up by um, people who are just new to the conversations and and sort of just come into our territories, not fully understanding that there's a very specific geopolitical history. There's a very specific um, cosmology and philosophy that Indigenous people have. And again, we're kind of just grouped into this like Bering Strait theory that, you know, ultimately is like designed to try and displace us and uplifted time and time again to displace us, not only historically, but even intellectually. Oh, so it's kind of like this whataboutism. Yeah, it's almost as if like we're, we're trying to be that they're trying to silence the indigenous arguments to land and, and, and territory. Well, what we do know, and I would say even European scholars and historians would agree is going back to man versus nature again, there was over foresting in Europe and there was over fur hunting in Europe. So they were running out of fur. They were running out of lumber. And that's part of what they needed in the Americas is lumber and fur. So even agnostic to the Americas, that in itself shows the problem that was already happening in Europe. Yeah, totally. Like, like it's really interesting when you look at European history. And, and it's kind of weird for me as an indigenous person when I see like Western historians really uplift like that feudal era. 
And like, you know, it's almost reinforced by Disney in terms of like kings and queens and princesses. And, and you know, the Western media really uplifts that whole imagery of, of that part of Europe at that time. But in all actuality, when you look at the history, you would not want to be alive. <laughs> you would not literally wouldn't want to be living in that time because chances of you surviving um, would be pretty slim. And the assumption is that you would probably be like a king or queen. And chances are you probably wouldn't be, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, And yeah, like if you look at like pre-contact Americas and like, I I think there's a scholar, uh, a journalist who uh, Charles C. Mann wrote uh, the book 1492. Um, Your your listeners could pick up that book. It's pretty straightforward stuff where he's just connecting some dots. But if you look at like pre-contact Americas, you know, even just the concept of, um, um, land stewardship and and maintaining the land base in a way where it could thrive and function um, in in its most again I don't like to use pristine but it wasn't Europe let's just say it wasn't like an over um, harvested Europe um, yeah so those concepts in Europe around like utilizing the resources and taking them and 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 using them to sort of gain access to wealth and things like that it wasn't necessarily um, well as well it wasn't necessarily that aggressive here in the Americas. This runs counter to that popular book, Sapiens, right? Yeah, totally. I think like the big critique I have of anybody who's trying to look at, um, you know, like human theory and human evolution is that it's always trying to like objectify it into one streamline and fluid thought. And, and it's, it's, it's close to impossible to do because obviously we weren't there, you know what I mean? And obviously you have to like take into amount, uh, into account multiple perspectives that just aren't physical, right? Because keep in mind, like Western science is all about like the data and what you could prove, um, which is why oral histories are often put on the back burner, right? They're not really taking into account our lived experiences and the stories that tie us to place. And, um, those are that, and for me as an indigenous scholar and indigenous person, that's primary. Like for me, I have to take into account the knowledge of my ancestors and my people and center that and stand on that as opposed to um, critiquing it to the point of where um, I'm not valuing it and only going with like one um, one sort of avenue of thought. And again, I, I kind of just critique people who try to sort of come up with that general trajectory. You talked about the vastness of the Cree Nation before. But now, what is it like now for specifically the Plains Cree Nakoda? Yeah, so for me, our our Indian Reserve, um, it's 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 small. I mean, it's like square, it's down to the square kilometers, and and our our reserve is not as big as as some other reservations in the U.S. or even other parts of Canada. But we're basically um, existing on like a postage stamp in Saskatchewan that is pretty small. Um, and again, we don't have access to that traditional territory and that land base, um, that we once had access to. I mean, we could, we could access it in terms of modernity. Like I could go live out in rural Saskatchewan if I wanted to, but that's not the most wisest choice for me as an indigenous person to make. So we tend to want to stay close to our kinship systems. So for some of us, you know, our kinship systems exist on the reserve. They exist where everyone's sort of congregating. Um, so yeah, sort of like the existence right now, just in terms of how reserves work in Canada. But again, you know, with colonialism, a lot of people have been disrupted. They don't have access to reserves. They don't have access to, um, kinship systems. So there is a big urban population, um, in Canada in general, indigenous urban population. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are just trying to find their roots again as a result of colonialism. So, I mean, when you look at colonization and colonialism, there is very big projects that really disrupted, 
who we were, not only politically, but socially and environmentally and economically, obviously. Um, and yeah, we're sort of just sort of beginning to navigate those and um, try to find some sort of uh, way to mitigate the impacts of colonization. Now, tell us what it's like to grow up on a reserve. Yeah, so I grew up, um, I was pretty fortunate in terms of um, my parents both um, going to college, going to university. Um, they're both social workers by trade. Um, so, you know, there was a conscious choice for my father and my mother to want to raise us in an environment where we did have access to our language, where we did have access to our kinship systems and our land-based practices. Um, so that was a conscious choice. So for me, um, my father, my late father dedicated a lot of time to wanting to build our setup out there to maintaining our home and, and um, sort of generating some sort of income to get us to stay there because keep in mind there's not much jobs out there so you sort of have to come up with creative ways to to sustain yourself um so that was their project i'm really grateful for that because i did grow up and go to the um, local school up until high school and then i i moved to the city to play basketball um because there's a better sports program in the bigger city um, but yeah, it was a conscious choice to grow up there. So for me growing up there, I, you know, I, um, and having social workers and, and, and mental health therapists as parents, there was more so, um, a conscious effort to maintain culture, to maintain, um, positive living and, and healthy lifestyle and things like that. Um, but that might not be the case for everybody. Like I'm only speaking to my, my, my experience growing up there. Um, but at the same time, you know, the re reserve, our reservations in general in this sort of modern era are viewed as very um, toxic places to live because of, you know, the family violence and because of the alcoholism and the lack of employment and things like that. So they're viewed very negatively. But, you know, for me, I always try and reposition that because um, our people who live there are consciously making the choice in some cases to try and maintain some sort of community on some level. And um, I, I really respect, you know, a lot of grassroots people for doing that. But that's not to say that people leave as a result of trauma or as a result of, you know, trying to build a better future for themselves. Um, yeah, they they. There's, there's many relationships to the reserve system and, and not some of them are positive, some of them are not. So it's a catch-22 where settler society and capitalist society creates this problem, and then settler society, capitalist society judges you for the problems that they created. Yeah, totally. To unpack that, what I mean by that is, okay, we're going to give you a little bit of land, but it's going to be over here. But all of us now must exist in this capitalist paradigm that we invented. But we're going to keep you away from capital, meaning physically give you a piece of land away from the capital and also away from the industry. And if you can't survive, then under our paradigm of bootstrap capitalism, then y'all messed up, right? So that's what I mean by the catch-22 is creating the problem and then judging you for the problems that they created. Yeah, exactly. So like if you were to like if we were just to position the like indigenous peace and diplomacy governance system, um, we engaged in like a treaty making process with the British Crown in 1876. Um, and it's a really interesting project when you look at it from the concept of um, oral histories and peace and diplomacy, because you're looking at a group of indigenous people basically um, creatively lock in like British imperialism into agreeing to certain things that they may not have agreed to in other parts of the British Empire. 
Um, and one of those things that sort of comes up in our old histories and our understanding of treaty was that we didn't surrender our land and territory. So we wouldn't. And, and there's a lot of uh, oral histories that highlight that, that we would, we never surrendered our land and territory. In context of Treaty 6, we, we agreed to the depth of a plow. So settlers coming here saying that, you know, we're just simply going to farm to the depth of a plow. We're going to bring our own animals um, and things like that. We, we did agree to sort of exist and create some sort of project with these people. Um, and we, did, we didn't necessarily agree to living on reserves. We agreed to having a piece of land reserved for ourselves, but still having access to the vast Treaty 6 territory. Um, and, you know as a result of colonization and, you know, people being slithery, um, it sort of just transpired into the reserve system in Canada through a specific policy that's not tied to treaty, um, the Indian Act. So some of your listeners could look into the Indian Act and how it exists in Canada, but it's basically like a very oppressive um, act created by the Canadian settler state um, that regulates and um, oppresses Indigenous people to one, us, you know, staying on the reserve, having to physically stay on the reserve where we need a pass to leave and basically just disrupting our whole way we lived and got together and implemented, you know, certain um, um, certain governance uh, attendance uh, that we have to abide by that aren't necessarily traditional. Um, so it really disrupted everything that we were trying to achieve in terms of um, peace and diplomacy. Um, so when you look at that and how it's playing out today, you know, the Indian Act, you know, being an act that was created in 1876, the Indian Act is still a document that basically governs our people right now. And it's still upholded and, and it's still technically, you know, recognized by the other Canadian state as something that that um, deals with the Indian problem. And um, there's pros and cons to this relationship, obviously. I mean, one is that there is sort of some sort of recognition of having to have some sort of legalities and legal um, understanding of Indigenous people. Um, but then at the same time, that legal understanding is very oppressive. It's very paternalistic. It's very toxic. And, you know, if you look at the history of the Indian Reserve, we were, we, we were in a position where we did want to become farmers in Treaty 6 territory, in this region in particular. And we were very successful at that because we did have the communal system that allowed for us to bring our labor together and have a very good harvest. You know, we were experts at coming together and working. But ultimately, we were too successful because what happened was a lot of Indian agents didn't give us the pass to leave the reserve to sell our grain. And so there was sort of like this very, um, again, very oppressive colonial, um, settler colonial dynamic that, that unfolded for our people. So in the guise of sovereignty, the way it really worked was de facto concentration camps or a de facto internment camp. Yeah, totally. And then, you know, a lot of people have that imagery and have that um, connotation of when they talk about the reserve system, it was ultimately forced poverty, um, um, forced isolation where we had to stay there, uh, weren't allowed to leave. Uh, we had to live there. We had to build our homes there, so to speak, and and, and live there. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of like created and, and generated this whole colonial project through the Indian Act in Canada to basically dictate how we lived our lives and dictated our success because it was not a successful time for us to live in the 1800s. And again, you know, that Indian Act policy is, is still upheld in, in the Canadian settler state. Here in the U.S., uh, when they interned the Japanese into concentration camps, a lot of these camps were right next to Indian reservations, what we call reservations here, right? 
mm-hmm. because the infrastructure to do that was already there. They had already experienced in interning people. And so it made sense to do it right next to the Indian reserves. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, in Canada, um, yeah, these reserves, some of them, you know, originally were put on very fertile land. Like there's a reserve locally here that was relocated um, because the land was too fertile and they wanted to sort of um, privilege the settlers to have access to that land. So it was always like a cherry picking type concept of, you know, land use and land access. But at the same time, you know, some communities did have access to spiritual and sacred sites in some of the regions. So like my community in particular, um, the reserve system we have in play is specifically put on historical site. So it's actually put on key sites that are sort of tied to our cosmology and our history. And um, so there's always pros and cons to the conversation, right? Because it always, it always, um, there's always like um, very specific histories for indigenous tribes no matter where they come from so yeah some people you know 100 percent got you know a shitty deal whereas other people were very actively engaged in trying to sort of carve out some sort of uh, livelihood in terms of you know land use and 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 shared territory and um yeah that's sort of what unfolded for my community in particular is that we did have access to some uh, fertile land and access to um some sacred sites in our specific area but the whole settler colonial project was unjust to begin with. So even when there's pros and cons, it's never win-win. It's never like pros, cons, like 50-50. Even the pros is going to still be on the wrong end. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, is that we're still dealing with a settler state that is, is trying to erase us and remove us from our territory. Um, they may not be like physically loading us up and shipping us out, but they, you know, they're legally trying to infringe on inherent indigenous rights on treaty rights um so there's an active um there's an active legal manis- manipulation that's taking place today where you know ultimately like if you even just you look at a treaty nation to nation dynamic where now you know canada's really slithery at sort of saying well you're canadians now you've been you haven't been at the table why don't you come sit at the table with us and we'll sort of bring you into the folds of the canadian settler state but then if you look at the whole project of peace and diplomacy, and particularly with treaty territories in Canada, well, no, that wasn't the goal. <laughs> our goal was to sort of have our own table, and we're going to have peace and diplomacy, and we're going to share these resources, but you're taking everything. And now in order for, in, for me to exist, you're saying to sort of compromise our governance project, our political project, and uplift yours. So going back to like, you know, that very aggressive historical colonialism into this sort of like modern um, trickery, you know, legal trickery, political trickery, and capitalism plays a big part of that, right? Because now they're saying, while you're out there on the reserve, and it's not a good livelihood, why don't you just come to like the urban center and, and start a business, you know, and then, you know, people start those businesses, and it comes along with certain paradigms, <laughs> it comes along with certain philosophies that really, you know, sort of compromise a lot of moral and historical aspects of who we are as Indigenous people. So it's evolved into legal and financial domination, whereas before it had some of that, but it was much more physical violence. Much more physical violence. Like, I mean, I mean, for your listeners, if they want to look into the residential school era in the U.S., it was the boarding school era where it was literal forced removal of Indigenous children. Um, you know, and the last residential school in Canada closed in the 1990s. So this is still like recent history, right? I have an older adopted sister who was in residential school. So this isn't like a hundred years ago. This is just, you know, within my generation. Um, 
yeah, so that historical colonialism that was very aggressive, and in and, and many aspects, colonial violence still is, like racism still out there. The RCMP and the police state is still there. Um, but now there's like this other front that is very manipulative in terms of almost wanting to embrace you. But at the same time, it's coming at a great cost of, of not only your inherent rights, but also just like certain ways of thinking that, you know, may not necessarily um, be positive for family systems and land and environment, right? It's all under duress. Yeah, yeah, totally. It is. It totally is. Because, you know, when you're looking at, you know, how it's playing out today is, is people do want some sort of sense of autonomy. Right. But when you're looking at like even just like media manipulation, right, there's a whole YouTube generation that's falling into YouTube. Suddenly now like this paradigm of wanting to be an influencer is coming into play. Right. So there's like a lot of like um, toxicity to the modernity. I'm not like being like an old senile old guy saying, you know, that's not our way of life. Um, No, what I'm saying is that, you know, there's a very real conscious political project that was historically in play that's being compromised for capital. You're currently a doctoral student in Indigenous Studies. So let's say I took an intro to Indigenous Studies class with you. What would I be learning? Yeah, for sure. Indigenous Studies, I mean, like just the general, you know, discipline is is basically coming out of the 60s and 70s where you had the first wave of Indigenous academics getting um, university degrees, starting to establish their own narratives and promote their own narratives and push back against, you know, against certain Western racist notions. Um, but it always varies. I mean, American Indian studies, it's usually referred to in the U.S. You could take a course and, you know, the first year courses are usually historical, looking at law and history and policy and things like that. But then you get into, you know, more advanced courses where you're looking at indigenous ways of knowing and you're looking at specific, um, even modern issues. So like issues with the justice system and things like that. So it's basically just giving some sort of autonomy and um, to indigenous scholars to look at the work they want to work, uh, look at the issues they want to look at and do the work they want to do. Um, and again, not having to get that Western degree that's sort of founded on Western philosophy and things like that. So it's a lot to cover in one class. Yeah, it's a discipline. I mean, most students will graduate um, with a four-year degree, a bachelor's degree in indigenous studies. Um, when they do want to declare it as a major, uh, we do also offer minors. A lot of programs offer um, majors and minors. Uh, it just depends where you go. Like I, I did my undergraduate at a tribal college in Indigenous Liberal Studies, so co- sort of getting a little bit of everything. But I did graduate with a four-year degree in Indigenous Liberal Studies. And in many ways, it's what's interesting about it, and it'll probably come up later in the podcast when we talk about it, is that Indigenous Studies, we sort of always have to learn everything times two. And what I mean by that is you have to, you're looking at Western history, Western philosophy, um, you know, Western policy and and politics, but you also always have to kind of look at, you know, the indigenous side of things. So, you know, how like settler scholars will take that, you know, political history course, and then it's just Western political theory, right? But for us, when we take those courses, we have to sort of sit with ourselves and say, well, how does this relate to me as indigenous people? How does this relate to our understanding of our governance systems? So we're always like kind of doing double the work in in a lot of our uh, intellectual thought processes because we have to sort of figure out how this translates to us and for us. Um, and again, you get, you know, the the Western scholar who just gets to study, you know, Western history. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a... Uh, interesting uh, privilege they have just to be able to dedicate 100% of their time to something, whereas we're constantly having to navigate uh, settler colonialism and, and even just the intellectual landscape. So why I think it's important to learn more about you 
is because you're our eyes in. With topics that concern indigenous people, I often find it's covered as if we're tourists just visiting. And as tourists, we carry the same baggage and we leave with that same baggage. So whatever we get is domain specific to one issue rather than a paradigm shift. Not to say this episode will be a paradigm shifting episode for everyone, but that's how I want to at least frame it. Because the main topic we're really here to discuss is settler colonialism, which is a foreign concept even for people on the left. So we need to really define a lot of terms so we can have a common language. And this is a term that you've already mentioned several times. So let's get into it. Let's start with settler colonialism. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, for sure. So like, I, I do know your audience, you know, um, obviously, you know, being a, being a leftist podcast that a lot of them are, do have leftist, you know, political philosophies. Um, but, you know, when you look at settler colonialism, it's basically just like non-Indigenous, predominantly non-Indigenous people coming in, attempting to make the land um, their, their home. So however they're going about displacing those Indigenous peoples, those Indigenous rights, and those di- indigenous relationships to that land and territory and ultimately taking it over and, and calling it your home ultimately. Um, a lot of modern relationships tie that to capital. So looking at settler colonialism as a source of capital. So displacing indigenous people to generate the, the capital from the resources and generating wealth from that landscape. And in order to do that, you have to remove the people from the top of the land, literally, or from the seascape and uh, marginalize them to the point so those projects could take place. For me, as a Korean person who thinks about neocolonialism in Korea, I often use the term colonizer. In a conversation with you online about colonialism, you said, well, settler for us. So let's unpack that because settlers cannot exist without colonizers, but they're not always the same thing. And this gets at the heart of what is unique about the indigenous experience. So what is a settler and what is a colonizer? Yeah, for sure. So for me, I do personally, as a scholar, use the term settler. I know some scholars, some activists, some indigenous people don't like that term because it it sort of speaks to the colonial dynamic being settled. I know it's sort of like an argument that always comes up when I use that. What do you mean by settled? So like that it's sort of settled, it's taken care of, um, but really it's not settled. There's still a very real colonial project taking place. So some people approach that term from that literal definition of, of a settler. I also interestingly encountered settlers appropriate that term and sort of let it speak to like some sort of pilgrim identity, where it's almost like an embraced identity. Um, but the term settler was ultimately sort of generated to, you know, trigger white people and trigger, you know, settlers who are coming in and disregarding indigenous people. Um, so it, for me, I use that term intentionally on the prairie uh, that is predominantly, you know, full of farmers and agribusiness um, to, to get that sort of response and that reflection from them. Um, because, you know, they're, they're not necessarily from here. They're new arrivals to the neighborhood and it's still technically our neighborhood, um, even legally through treaty making processes. Um, colonizer i mean i did love using that term when i was like an undergrad and and just doing my masters but colonizer tends to like really um um turn people away from the conversation um it's it's really like kind of an aggressive term because i think a lot of people are familiar with that um but i I know settlers are actively utilizing settler ally even as a term now um 
And and so it's it's softer, but it, it sort of speaks to that settler colonial dynamic that's taking place. And but for me as a scholar, you know, colonizer also ultimately for me how I identify that in the decolonial sense too is understanding that a colonizer is actively participating in colonization. So they actively want those indigenous people out of there. They actively want to arrest those people. They actively want them to legally not exist anymore. And they're conscious of that project. Right? So they're, they're actively engaged in it, whereas a settler could be unconscious of it. Right, So they could just be benefiting from you know, the, the economics of, of colonialism. They could be benefiting from the social constructs that it's creating that's giving them their privilege. So they're completely unconscious of it, sort of just being like the pawn of colonialism and taking up space. Yeah, exactly. Taking up space, you know, trying to direct conversations. Um, and we see that happen politically. We see that happen in social work. We see that happen, you know, on, in basically every sort of like discipline and job is that settlers are really unconscious because they've been misinformed. They've been miseducated on, on the real history of what took place in the Americas, wherever they're from, wherever they're occupying, because this is an indigenous Americas, right? Another way to think about it then is, and from a more pedantic viewpoint might be, let's say the British Empire, let's say people in charge of the British Empire, they stay in Great Britain, but they send people over to colonize. They send these settlers to displace. So then me not even going there, if I was British in the British Empire, as somebody who has this type of authority, sending people over there, I am a colonizer, but I'm not over there being a settler. Exactly. Yeah. So settlers can be pawns of colonizers, and I guess they could be like lowercase colonizer too, because they are colonizing. But a colonizer doesn't necessarily have to be a settler to be a colonizer. So uh, another way to think about it, at least that was helpful for me to think about it as a Korean person, is obviously I'm non-white. And colonizers can create these, like you said, these acts, the Indian Act, or these other types of policies that are very oppressive to the indigenous people of a certain area. And then I can come in as a Korean person, as a non-white person, and benefit from that by, I don't know, let's say I build a giant compound there because I'm a rich dude and I settle there. I was not a colonizer. I didn't institute those policies, but I am benefiting from those policies even as a non-white person. So I could even be a settler. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And I know like traditionally, like if you look at the academic theory on settler colonialism, it was it was geared towards predominantly like a European. But at the same time, you know, there's now more recent conversations where we're trying to sort of pinpoint the relationship that, um, yeah, like, you know, uh, newcomers are people who are not necessarily white or European descent sort of coming in and benefiting from those settler colonial mechanisms to sort of capitalize off that land and territory also. So yeah, and I even like even for me personally, when I use the term settler, I still think of predominantly like white farmers in this region, um, and we're and we're really trying to like figure out how to navigate it just in terms of um, newcomers and immigrants, and in particular even refugees, right, who are sort of displaced by uh, U.S. imperialism and things like that. Um, like for me, I wouldn't necessarily call a refugee a settler per se. But, you know, at the same time, when you look at the projects that they sort of benefit from over time, then you start to see how the settler colonial apparatus is generating paradigms of people to create wealth that benefits the overall project. And also the original people didn't have autonomy or a say in taking in those refugees, not to say that they wouldn't. Yeah, totally. And then at the same time, we just recently did a podcast with a close friend of mine, Roma Nawaz, where she highlights how, you know, immigrants coming into Canada are are 
ultimately really taking on board certain paradigms of the settler state that don't serve Indigenous people. So they're inheriting and acculturating the racism. They're inheriting and acculturating the stereotypes and, and inflicting those onto Indigenous people. Um, and again, doing so very unconsciously and ultimately coming at it in a way where um, um, they want to replicate the colonial project. Or they want to benefit from the whole myth of coming to the Americas and and generating some sort of wealth, right? And again, I, I approach this very cautiously because I, I do have friends who are refugees and have been displaced and we did have conversations about this and they're critical of it. But then at the same time, you get people who aren't critical of it, who are, you know, calling Indians drunks or, you know, following us around the store because they think we're going to steal type thing. And um, that's really problematic because again, settler colonialism has to miseducate people um, for them to carry forward those projects. Uh, there's a movie called Parasite, the Korean movie, where it's an all-Korean cast. It takes place in South Korea. And there's a couple of scenes where the some of the characters are dressed as stereotypes of American Indians or American indigenous people, right? With the headdress and everything to have this party because uh, the the rich kid wants to have a Cowboys and Indians party, right? And the whole point was to say that these rich people are no longer Korean in their wealth, like something that we're going to get into, but in their wealth, as they become wealthier and more Americanized, they are white. And these are the Koreans, right? It's talking about neocolonialism. So even though by birth they are Korean, they've adopted so much of uh, whiteness that they've even adopted their white supremacy. There's this Frantz Fanon quote that I think about, which is, quote, the cause is effect. You are rich because you are white. You are white because you are rich. And that is the neo-colonialist project that the movie Parasite was talking about. So to your point, then as non-white people, yes, we can adopt that colonialist perspective. Yeah, and I think that 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 is the direct result of the settler state apparatus too, right? Because when you're look, when I do talk to students who are immigrants, and you know, when they, we have like you know, um, when they come to my office and visit and want to ask for clarification, they do talk about how literally Canada hasn't told them anything about Indigenous people. It exists as a paragraph in their whole little brochure they get. And, you know, it's positioned as, yeah, there were indigenous people here. They're Aboriginal Canadians. We had a big Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And, yeah, everything's good now. But then when they actually get out into the landscape and get into the urban centers and really start to interact with people, they realize, oh, there's some very colonial stuff going on here that's still taking place. Um, yeah, so those projects, you know, they, they definitely generate and gear people towards privileging the settler state apparatus and the settler state paradigms, which is inherently tied to capitalism also. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So I already mentioned him, but someone we both draw a lot of inspiration from is Frantz Fanon 
who was a French West Indian psychiatrist as well as a Marxist political philosopher. He's most known for his work in post-colonial studies, and I highly, highly recommend his book, The Wretched of the Earth. Just remember, the book is a series of essays, so it doesn't necessarily have a linear through line. He basically dictated it as he was dying of leukemia, but that's also why the book is so powerful. He just said it the way he wanted to say it. So when someone talks about being a Marxist-Leninist, they're not necessarily saying Lenin or Marx is their leader. What they're saying is Lenin's interpretation of Marx is the best framework they've found to explain the world and their experience. Because Marxism is flexible, similar to something I'm very much interested in, which is Taoism, except much less vague compared to Taoism. For Maoist, the same thing. He's not your god or your leader. His interpretation of Marxism, plus his own anti-imperialist philosophy, plus some Chinese philosophy, is the framework that helps you decipher the world. Same for Marxist feminism and so on. I would say then the same could be true for Fanon, that you can look at the same things through a Marxist Fanonian or a Fanonian framework and apply Marxism, or as Fanon puts it, stretch Marxism to understand colonialism. I know Koreans stretch Fanon to understand their own neocolonialism. So let's first start off with The Wretched of the Earth. Can you tell us what the book is about? Yeah, for sure. So for me as an indigenous scholar, um, like when I talk about decolonization, I ultimately refer to Fanonian decolonization for sure. Like that's that's my relationship to it um, and, and to the work of Fanon in particular. But yeah, The Rest of the Earth was, um, again, like you said, you know, written by Fanon with a sort of sense of hindsight clarity where he wanted to pinpoint main aspects of his whole experience of, you know, trying to displace colonialism. And in particular, not only physically, but even psychologically as a psychoanalyst. Um, and yeah, Rest of the Earth was written in that in that paradigm and in that mindset of, of, of course, you know, um, suffering from leukemia. But again, like you said, hits home some core points without um, beating around the bush, so to speak. Um, but yeah, he's bringing a lot of his, his, his lifestyle, his life experience into the rest of the earth. And he does sort of, um, position, um, some very big aspects of what decolonization looks like in that book. Um, and yeah, for your readers to, to pick that up and read that, I would really be open to, you know, hearing their interpretations of it. Because for me as an indigenous scholar, I mean, for me, I always say Fanon's my grandfather because Fanonian decolonization really hits home for me just in terms of what I'm observing take place in real time on the prairie, but also, you know, just in terms of my own psychology. Because when we talk about reading theory, I think this is one of the best books as far as theory that deals with the internal work. You and I have talked a lot about this, that people jump into politics without doing any of the internal work that they have to do, maybe during or even before jumping into politics. Whereas this is the book that talks about doing the internal work, because so much of it is about the psychoanalysis, especially for people who are non-white or people who are indigenous or people who feel alienated. The right, they have self-help books to feel better. Whereas for us, I think we have this book, we have The Wretched of the Earth. It's our self-help book. It's like our way to unpack a lot of our own trauma and to heal. 
Yeah, for sure. So the, the paradigm that Fanon was writing about things was obviously from a psychoanalyst, like a um, psychiatric sort of approach to things, which which obviously is dated today. Like, I mean, we do have like, you know, a lot of people of color who are social workers and doing amazing work in mental health field. Um, but for Fanon's time, you know, when he was looking at sort of him sort of going through what he was going through psychologically and looking at colonized people from a psychological perspective, he was using the terminology of the day, which was, you know, psychiatry and stuff. And obviously, he was using like very gendered language in some of his assessment and things like that in general. But when you look at like what Fanon was hitting home was obviously like when people read Retro the Earth, they're going to read concerning violence first, um, which is pretty graphic, pretty um, it is often interpreted as him arguing for people to take up arms and be physically violent. Um, and, 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 people stop there. <laughs> like there's like, Oh, Fanon's really violent. Why are you referring to him? He's calling for violent overthrowing of things. But the backstory, like in his first books around like um, black skin, white mask was he was looking at the psychology and the identity of what it is to be oppressed, what it is to be black in his case in particular, you know, what are, what are the, uh, what's the psychology of who I am and how I am? Because a lot of that stemming from my trauma and my relationship to colonization and colonialism. Right. So a lot of the acts and the acting out of of a colonized person was actually stemming from colonialism itself. Um, and he positions that. So the psychological inquiry that Fanon really promotes is really paramount to any kind of decolonial work because you kind of got to dive into what drives your gears. And and I always tell people when they read Rest of the Earth, read the case studies first. Before I even jumped into it, I read some stuff that said you don't have to read it in order. And in fact, there's actually guides online that tell you, read it in this order. It'll make a lot more sense. And also from what I've understood, people who speak French, they said they get something different out of it when they read it in French. Going back to the violence part, I think reading it in English, we take everything so much more literally. Maybe he meant everything literally, but in the French, it's much more nuanced, much more metaphoric, much more symbolic. Like even when you're talking about colonial violence, a lot of it is physical violence, but it doesn't all have to be physical violence, right? You also can meet it in this metaphoric way. And I think that's also the way he was using it. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And I, I think I did get a critique from like one of my committee members saying to dive into the French Fanon stuff um, when I was doing my comp exams. But I was like, no, I'm one colonial tongue is good enough for me. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to dive into French. Um, but I do know that some French colleagues really sort of like like Fanon's um, terminology in that way. And there's definitely differences in some of how like the vernacular is used. Um, but for me, like my interpretation of Fanon is that when he's talking about violence, he's talking at it from the perspective that it's often the colonizer who's going to meet any sort of resistance or any sort of liberation act with violence. So they're the ones that are going to bring the violence to the equation. So when you, Fanon's talking about concerning violence, he's talking with the base and the understanding that it's going to be the settler, it's going to be the colonizer that's going to react violently. Yeah, he's concerned about their violence. Yeah, exactly. And you sort of have to have this conversation of, you know, with yourself of, well, am I going to be colonized or am I going to resist that colonization? Because obviously, you know, in, in how he's terming things is that colonization is violent on many scales. Um, so the concerning violence aspect, I feel like gets people acquainted with this concept of how far am I willing to go to defend myself and ultimately just hitting home the fact that violence is going to be there. Violence is always going to be, you know, it's going to be, um, 
referred to even as a threat, right? And we see that with activism today. We see that with, you know, Standing Rock and and, um, the Dakotas when they were resisting the the oil pipelines that, you know, it was the police that really set up the blockades where they sent in the National Guard to do this stuff. And, and of course, there's very real physical violence. So if somebody's not comfortable with, with those conversations, I mean... Read Fanon lightly, but ultimately that's what it's getting to is the fact that there's going to be some very real form of violence. And and we see that with police violence. We see that with um, um, how the legal system structured. And there's a very real reason why there's a majority. Um, there's a very real reason why there's a high population of Indigenous peoples incarcerated in, in the settler state and in particular even in the British Commonwealth in New Zealand and Australia. Um, that's all violence. That's all form of violence. So, you know, having this conversation around violence doesn't just necessarily mean I'm going to take up arms. No, what it's really talking about is I have to be mindful that violence is going to be brought (laughs) and it's going to be present. And of course, you know, just looking at the U.S., right, looking at, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, uh, people organizing and mobilizing in Canada. Every time we organize and mobilize, there's always the settlers and the colonizers saying you don't mobilize and organize like that. And if you, you know, take it any further, there's going to be a very real threat coming your way. And it's just assumed as normal, right? Now it's assumed as normal where where the police are going to show up and they are going to arrest and there are going to be, uh, there is going to be police violence. The instruments of violence will show up. So you have to be concerned about it. Exactly. I found the introduction by Sartre to be very helpful. So I think also reading that first, he tells you how to read Fanon. Here's like, here's what Fanon does. Here's how you should read him. So I think that's also very helpful. And there's a lot of online guides about Fanon as far as like commentary. So you read a chapter and then like there's a podcast or a YouTube video that discusses what that chapter was about. So I find all of that also very helpful on top of the reading. I think it's it's one of those things that once we're out of school, we don't want to do homework anymore. But this is one that is very meaningful to do. Yeah, for sure. And I know with the introduction too, um, it. It's, I feel like there's a misinterpretation on the introduction because he's, you know, um, it's positioned as like this is for the colonized to read. But really, I feel like everyone should read this book because it, Fanon's really highlighting the structure of colonization, colonialism and decolonization from the lived experience of it. Um, and everybody should read that and see that and, and keep that in mind that it's coming at it from a lived experience. It's not necessarily like the theorist um, who's who's envisioning something, it's actually a lived experience that Fanon actually carried forward the project of decolonization in Algeria and, you know, coming at it from um, even being in, in the world war and things like that and observing that whole dynamic. He brought a lot of life experiences to this work. And it really shows because I think he's, he's just basically telling it as it is. Um, so yeah, everyone should be reading Fanon. If not, at least, um, no, I'll just say everyone should read Fanon. Like I, that's always like my, that's always my go-to period. <laughs> yeah. It's like, sometimes I won't even talk. I, I, I don't talk to people about decolonization unless they have some sort of understanding of what Fanon has done and has written. Even, um, when talking about this project, Southpaw, not only the podcast, but the different groups that we have going that centers around martial arts and combat sports, I often say the definitive book for political theory for martial arts and martial artists is The Wretched of the Earth, is reading Frantz Fanon. Why is that? Well, you think about it. Most of the people who are doing martial arts are, at least here domestically, they're white. And they're doing arts from other countries. And often they go there to those other countries. And they learn there. And they 
extract that knowledge. It's this traditional knowledge. It's a cultural knowledge. And they bring it back and they do it here. Or they set up camp over there and create a tourist slash trading post destination for white people to come and train there in this other native land that belongs to somebody else. So if that's not talking about colonialization in all the different forms, whether you think about exploitation colonization or neocolonialism or all the, all the different ways you have to think about it, you can't even have those conversations. I can't talk to somebody who's into martial arts and talking about all the political problems that are existing in martial arts today unless they have some experience with Fanon. And especially like I was talking to somebody about white saviors in Muay Thai and they were like, what, what do you mean? What do you mean white saviors? And it's like, how that is not obvious yet is that lack of Fanon thinking about this from, I don't know, purely uh, an economic standpoint or that right wing chuds like martial arts. But the bigger framework is colonialism. That is the way to think about martial arts. It's going to another country, taking their traditional knowledge and bringing it back over here or setting up camp over there and taking their knowledge, extracting profit and exploiting them because you're not sharing any of that money with them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how did you discover France Fanon? Yeah, so for me, um, as an undergraduate at my tribal college, I, I saw Fanon being referred to in you know some of my articles. I was looking for my little research papers and things like that. But when I got into my Master's of Arts in Indigenous Governance program at the University of Victoria, uh, Fanon was a required reading. So Rest of the Earth was required reading. Um, Black Skin, White Mask was a required reading. And so that's when I dove into it and sort of just like was really um, taken back by like the clarity of what Fanon was describing just in terms of what I was experiencing as an indigenous male growing up in Canada um, and putting words to that. And then ultimately even calling out, you know, the, the symptoms of, of the political relationships and, you know, just providing that whole um, understanding and painting a picture of what's really taking place and putting words to that was, was uh, refreshing for me, which is why I love Fanon because he was basically like for me in my experience, and I know a lot of your listeners won't really be able to relate to an indigenous male experience in Canada, but Fanon, it's almost as if he's alive today writing about some of the dynamics that exist in, in indigenous politics or in um, the neo-colonial political legal frameworks that are existing and how there's, you know, classes emerging now at this point in, in um, indigenous uh, decolonization and how we're seeing that play out. And so drawing on Fanon at this point in time for me is like pivotal. It's, it's, it's mandatory that I do that because Fanon is basically, well, I wouldn't even say prescribing. Fanon is highlighting what I'm seeing and to bounce off ideas off him in that way um, is really cool. Yeah. It's evergreen. And I would even say to your point earlier about the language in the book, that it can be archaic, but because we don't get exposed to this type of theory and this type of writing and, and analysis and framework, we don't even notice really that the language is archaic because it just seems advanced in that this is our first time hearing it. So these concepts are so foreign and new and so like mind-blowing. You're like, you don't notice the archaic language. So even in his archaic language that he wrote this book decades ago, because we are so separated and the indigenous experience is so erased and we don't ever really talk about, even on the left, we talk about everything from an economic standpoint. We don't talk about things from a colonial standpoint and a post-colonial struggle standpoint. This is all new. So it's old, but it's new. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. It totally does. Like, like I think when you're looking at Fanon too, just the fact that, you know, when he's looking at... um 
Um, like you said it earlier when you were talking about how he's using you know, Marxist theory and things like that and building off it. Um, yeah, like people tend to look at that in hindsight history of like sort of saying, oh, that's Marxism historical and stuff. But when you're look, actually looking at how he's applying that to ongoing current things that were taking place at his time, um, it was it was almost like, he, I don't know how to explain it. Like, like he's almost as if he's improving off the ideas to the point of where they're, they were fitting better, where they're fitting better to the whole dynamic. Um, and again, like, you know, when you look at Fanani and he kind of does sort of critique Marx in terms of, you know, how he was isolating class to um, certain aspects of European thought and things like that. And how Fanon was taking, you know, more race-based analysis and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's like definitely like tied and it's like the missing puzzle piece I find where he's sort of um, bringing everything together and, and putting um, labels to what a lot of people are experiencing at that time and also today. Yeah, he took what this white guy created, right? Which fortunately, it's a self-correcting type of philosophy, so it can be stretched. And Fanon took it and he took this white guy's theory and made it make sense for the rest of us in all of our different contexts, right? So people think Marxism ended with Marx. And it's like, no, there were, there were a lot of like black and brown people who updated these ideas. And again, it goes back to erasure where we don't hear about him. So we think, oh, that stuff doesn't apply to us anymore. And there's like, well, maybe that specific stuff doesn't necessarily align one-to-one, but there's stuff other people have done, other black and brown and, and indigenous scholar work that has been done that might fit your perspective and your lived experience better. Yeah. If somebody's asking themselves why they never heard of Fanon, that is definitely like structural. There's a very real reason why you didn't hear of Fanon because it's badass. Like it, it's, it's hard hitting. Um, and then, yeah, I just wanted to build off your point of where you're saying, you know, just in terms of theory in general, Marxist theory or Lenin's theory, anything like that. One thing that sort of always bugs me is people tend to view that as the specific project, not necessarily as, you know, trying various projects over various amounts, like over a various span of time. So, you know, applying theory um, to implement a project that may not work, may not yield the best outcome, doesn't necessarily mean that it's defeated or doesn't necessarily mean that it could be built off of. It's just drawing on the ideas that could translate into action or translate into a structure. And, you know, being really flexible with those ideas, with those theories and where they're coming from, I think is really important for this landscape we're in today. Um, because there's always like this dichotomy, right? There's always this like um, left or right. And I and Fanon even highlights that even in context to um, um, decolonization is that we have to approach that dichotomy very critically and create the framework and the blueprints. He calls them the blueprints of, of what what the new project's going to look like. And, um, and for like, you know, the leftists I grew up uh, encountering or the leftists that show up to our sort of active... Uh, I wouldn't say activism, the leftists that show up to our communities and to our organizing um, tend to sort of have this dichotomy in play where they're not as flexible, where they're not as open to the conversation that needs to take place for that very specific geopolitical context. And it's like they're coming at it with so much historical theory that it's like, no, nah, man, you need to come up to like what's taking place right now and base, you know, your theory off the conditions we're living in are the conditions of this very specific organizing that's taking place. Yeah, you got to catch up, dude. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, and then, like, I mean, for me, like, you know, being in university and, and doing some organizing events, I'm always amazed at how many people come at things with a traditional theory and try to uplift that in the face of, you know, very real organizing that's adjusting and being flexible. Um, yeah, and that's just like a side note for me. Um, and I guess like just hitting home the fact that I feel like a lot of organizing today um, is really reactionary based. Like if you're looking at the emergence of the right and, you know, conservatives at the dinner table with their 
the, you know, millennials and young kids, a lot of young kids want to react to that, I find. So a lot of their politics becomes reactionary to that table conversation or becomes reactionary to the settler political state. And so they're just sort of like ebb and flowing between, you know, the political narratives and conversations. But really, when you're looking at like what Fanon's arguing for and what indigenous people need and oppressed people need is the the replacement of that project that sort of creates that whole condition to begin with. And Fanon really hits, like, for me, like, Fanon highlights that is where you have to be very, we can't catch up to Europe, I think his reference is, is not, not to replicate the European project, but to create something new. And it's a that radical transformation that I've always been attracted to that, you know, some settler leftists and even just settlers in general have a hard time envisioning because it's almost like there's a subconscious commitment to the settler state. <laughs> and uh, that has to be unpacked, that has to be decolonized. <laughs> So that means like even people who are not colonized people can decolonize because they carry so much of that baggage with them. Yeah, exactly. Like, like if you look at like Fanon, just from that psychological sense, we have to sit and reflect on on the clone, the colonization that happens internally. Like, who am I? Where do I come from? And how have I invested or benefited from this project ultimately? And deconstructing that, like, there's a very big aspect of deconstructing the self, and 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 looking at the source of my paradigm when Fanon in in Fanon's work, I find in particular, not only for the oppressed and the colonized but the settler also like that it has to be exist on that sort of um depth and level of self-conversation to that inquiry that emotional intelligence um has to take place for people what was so refreshing about the wretched of the earth it's like the first time you're dealing with something like this where he gives you permission he gives you permission to no longer be rigid and to be flexible about your political ideas right to stretch not only Marxism, but just all your leftist ideas, that it has to adapt to whatever the context and framework is. It's like struggling to lose weight and nothing ever works until you find somebody or something where it gives you permission to like not follow the diet so rigidly. And then you finally find something, oh, it's flexible. It works around my lifestyle, right? And this isn't necessarily about lifestyle, but it's that same idea that he's giving you permission to cheat on your diet. It's like, it's okay not to follow everything rigidly the way it was first prescribed like years ago, because even what they also prescribed was that it should wax and wane and stretch and adapt over time. And it should be always self-correcting and evolving. And he reminded us that. I think it was there. It's just that Nobody thought to highlight it and make that the emphasis. And right off the bat, that's one of the first thing Fanon does is to highlight our ability to be flexible in our minds and our thinking if we really want to decolonize because it's messy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. How do you apply the Fanonian framework to the indigenous experience in North America? Like, I think like if we really looked at... um well, it's really hard for me to explain that because a lot of your audience may not necessarily be indigenous. I know there's some of my colleagues and friends who who are who are listening to Southpaw now, um, but you know, Fanonian decolonization for me, um, when we're looking at it play out in context of very specific geopolitical regions, I feel like the psychology right now is where we're at, where we're looking at like indigenous people um, standing the truth of who they are. And I know Fanon highlights that where, you know, you're looking at the settler, not from the level of a person who's oppressed or is afraid of them, but a person who sees themselves as being an autonomous human being in relation to them. And I feel like a lot of political activism and actions right now are reasserting autonomy 
reasserting an indigenous self in the face of settler colonialism that ultimately like freaks settlers out sometimes because we are standing in the truth of who we are. We are occupying space. We are blockading. We are doing all these actions all across the Americas. Like in the news, you know, in the past few weeks, there was um, some resistances to the border wall in Tahana Autumn Territory. Um, the Haudenosaunee in Ontario have an active land back campaign going on. The Mi'kmaq in out east are, are trying to establish their own lobster fishery and it's being met with violence. So all these indigenous people are standing up in the truth of who they are and asserting those truths and that identity. And the settler state doesn't know how to respond to that. And I, th- I feel like we're in the stage now where the psychological validation is taking place for a lot of people, a lot of um, uh, rediscovering of our identity, our language, uh, like relearning indigenous language is a big project right now for a lot of people. And that all ties into uh, decolonization. But ultimately what that builds up to is land back projects. How do we go about obtaining land back? How do we go about the liberation of land, so to speak? And that's going to translate to different projects all across the Americas um, because, you know, the geopolitical contexts are different wherever you go. But even that in itself is really beautiful because it's disrupting, you know, the three nation states in North America, Mexico, United States and Canada. So how do they respond to multiple land back campaigns that are very specific to regions and territories? And for me, there's a beauty in that. You know, for some people, that's chaotic. And, you know, people always say, well, that's not going to happen. You know, <laughs> that's too too big. Or are you envisioning your own nation state type thing? I don't know what I'm envisioning, but I do know it's going in the direction of where we're seeing young people promote land back as a concept, land back as a goal. And how that looks, you know, uh, it's going to translate in different ways. But ultimately, that's like the next step of Fanonian decolonization is one, to psychologically get strong enough to carry forward the project of decolonization, and then to carry forward the project of decolonization. There's decolonization as a broad term, but we're talking about external things and internal things, right? So external would be land back, internal would be working on those psychological aspects that you're talking about. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the, and that's how I always interpreted Fanonian decolonization was first and foremost the internal conversation, and then the external conversation as being like land back and 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 physical space being reclaimed. Like um, again, like referring to my my podcast, um, there's the last like few um, few people we sat with both identified and highlighted how conversations between two brown people need to take place without the presence of a settler or without the presence of a white person. That's decolonial, right? Because you liberated the space and the conversation from the third party, which is, you know, the settler state or a settler person. And for me, that's decolonial. For me, that also has to translate to the projects that are taking place out on the land, that are taking place in disciplines, that are taking place in, you know, certain projects is that we have to have a conversation amongst ourselves without the presence of not only the settler, but even the settler state apparatus. And how that looks, I mean, it's going to be different, but it's exciting. I mean, even think about our own conversation that we're having right now. How often, even in leftist podcasting, whether it's on YouTube or independent media or audio podcasts like this, is an indigenous scholar talking about decolonization with an Asian person, right? Very rarely. I mean, I would even say two indigenous people talking about it on a podcast is rare, but having this transnational decolonization conversation on a podcast is this might be the first one right a a korean person speaking to an indigenous scholar about this kind of stuff which is to say 
then to your point about just removing that settler or that white person from the conversation, even in the left, even in left media is still so, so very rare. Yeah, totally. And we, d- we don't have that one like white theorist referred to Marx or, <laughs> or referred to, you know, the, the cliche uh, theory of, of certain leftist philosophers. Which, which obviously always happens in like academic settings, right? There's always going to be that one theorist who's going to bring up a very specific quote on a very specific page that I probably skimmed, but it's sort of just <laughs> like <laughs> coming at it from like out in left field. You know what I mean? And I, I don't know if I speak for both of us, but because of this framework, it's much more comfortable. And, and that goes back to that own psychological courage that you were talking about from the Fanonian standpoint. But it's like, that's something I'm working towards. But adding that element adds a discomfort. Even if they're a true ally, it just, it makes it harder. Yeah, totally. I agree. Like, like for me, like even just to, for me to openly say, you know, I'm not an expert on Fanon, like I'm not an expert on how decolonization is going to play out. I'm just the person speaking to my own observations. Standing in the truth of that openly and publicly is very hard for some people to do, right? Because even if you're looking at a colonial education system, you have to always know your shit, right? And and for me, like, like for me to openly say, like, I'm a skimmer, sometimes people freak the hell out because it's like, no, you're supposed to be a PhD candidate expert on this stuff. But, you know, I'm a human being and I'm navigating, you know, the chaos in a, in a very real way and putting words to what I'm experiencing. And there's truth in that. So, you know, people being honest and authentic with themselves, I think, is a very decolonial act. And again, that stems from the under, uh, understandings I have of Fanon. Well, I think kind of the old cliche about being a woman in comedy, right, or being a person of color in comedy writing is that you have to be three or four times funnier than the white person just to get anywhere within proximity, right? And I think that same thing applies academically is this pressure, whether it's real or not, you feel like you have to know it four times better. And so then you almost have to give this caveat because you know you can never live up to that. Yeah, that's definitely real in academia. Like there's definitely real, um, you have to be a better academic than the white academic. Um, And yeah, that translates across multiple things. Um, and I guess that kind of speaks to also like indigenous studies, right? It's like, it is, it is, I mean, you, we are operating in colonial institutions and things like that, that do have a history to colonialism. But I mean, to concentrate on our own theory, to concentrate on our own topic areas and to um, dedicate time to that, as opposed to having to, you know, know Marxist theory better than the white Marxist, I think, again, is a very decolonial act where we're creating our own spaces to exist freely. Um, yeah. It's like the difference between being able to speak about something as a right versus like this internal colonization where you feel like you have to earn that right, right? We don't start off thinking we have it as a right. We have to keep earning it. And like I said, I haven't worked through it. It sounds like you're working through it. It's something we're we're just going to have to manage. Yeah. Yeah. And if somebody says they figured it out, they're lying. Like if somebody <laughs> says they figured it out, they're lying because it's an always ongoing thing, right? Is that we're, we're, we're vis- we, even like visibly, we're different. So it's always like an internal conversation we're having with ourselves. But structurally, it's there too. So we're dealing with it internally because the structural apparatus hasn't gone away either, right? So we will be judged differently. Totally. And then like going into town for groceries, you know, there's going to be a gaze. There's going to be, I'm visible. I'm a big, you know, native dude walking into the grocery store um, and people tend to want to avoid me. But then, you know, that dialogue's always there. Like you're always conscious of that. Um, 
Yeah, and again, like with Fanonian decolonization, simply just becoming aware of that is is a step in decolonization. Being aware of who we are, how we are, where those beliefs and paradigms are coming from is really important. Um, I want to, I, I, like, I think also like just to hit home to your viewers or your listeners to like how decolonization works in terms of paradigms. I had a, I was doing a workshop in a community, and uh, I, I had a relative of mine in this workshop that was. Um, hearing me talk about Fanon and present my slides around, you know, paradigms and being colonized and oppressed and how we think about ourselves and things like that. And it clicked for him and he put it really well where he said, you know, what you said about Fanon makes a lot of sense because for me, as an indigenous father, I always wanted to make sure my kids had clean clothes, have good clothes, um, especially when you went to town. Um, and town clothes is a thing for us as indigenous people, because town clothes are sort of like the clothes you wear to go to town. So people know you're going to town, but it's, it's kind of tied to like a colonized way of thinking, right? Because we have to look proper when we're in town, because that's ultimately like a white space. Um, and this clicked for him on the fly because he said, you know what I just realized? He said, I realize I don't want my kids to have nice clothes because I want them to have nice clothes. I just realized I want my kids to have nice clothes so white people don't view them as poor Indians. Mm. So it's like a complete shift in the paradigm he had around providing for his kids, right? So when we're looking at Fanon and the psychology of what we're navigating constantly, those awarenesses come up and we have to shift those paradigms constantly in terms of the spaces we're occupying and how we're navigating it. Right. So for my cousin um, who was navigating this on the fly, he realized that it's a completely healthy, good belief to want to provide for my kids and make sure they have good clothes, good shoes and things like that. But it was a very colonial, toxic way of limiting that belief and paradigm to meeting the needs or catering to like the white gaze. Um, so having to shift that focus completely, constantly is really important, uh, I feel, just in terms of having those decolonization awarenesses and practicing that on the, on the level of self, the psychology of self on the internal level. It takes courage. Decolonization takes courage. I think for a lot of people, even using their traditional names as far as like pronouncing it traditionally the way you're supposed to, even that takes courage because you know it's going to cause problems. It's going to cause friction. And you're going to have to do that every time. So that takes a lot of not only effort, but courage. Even something as minute as that. Like people might think of that as something small, a small gesture. But even if that takes courage, imagine then ramping up everything else, how much more courage everything else takes. Yeah, totally. So while traditional Marxism envisions a post-capitalist society, Fanon envisions a post-colonial society. Then explain to us how indigenous people still live in a colonialist society and how what we take as normal is rooted in colonialism. Yeah, so that, that was a good question. Like, I, I really like that question because the assumption that like the Western world has as indigenous people is that we were savage, is that we were like barbarians and we didn't have political structures or we didn't have, you know, um, a certain degree of agency or civility. That goes back to the boarding schools you were talking about, right? This idea of, quote unquote, killing the savage. Yeah, exactly. Um, killing the Indian and saving the man was the belief. And um, there's a big assumption around that, right? That, and, and I feel that assumption still plays forward today because, if, especially in my 
territory as geopolitically positioning myself as coming from a treaty territory that had nation-to-nation agreements, then for me, my dedication is going to be to the establishment of some sort of autonomy, some sort of political project, or you know what Fanon calls like the nationalist culture, establishing that to certain degrees. Um, but when we're looking at like the current reality that a lot of settlers aren't aware of are people who are politically inclined, who don't necessarily connect these dots um, and say, hey, you know, indigenous people have the right to nationhood and they have the right to land. One of the assumptions made is that, well, I could just prescribe to these people how we're going to bring them into the folds, or I could just prescribe to these people um, how to govern themselves, or I could prescribe how my governance project is going to bring in indigenous people to this framework, right? And that's still colonial. That's like still settler colonial because it's not coming from the autonomous people who are deciding for themselves how they want to live and function. And I find like a lot of leftists fall short in this area because the assumption is that, well, we're just going to bring you into the folds and overthrow, you know, the government, so to speak, um, or have a revolution, right? Revolution's a big, you know, uh, semantic term for us because it's like, well, if you want a revolution, we never really even had our project fully emerge yet. So what are you trying to revert back to? <laughs> right? Because we have a treaty relationship, we have peace and diplomacy, um, we have this project that we saw in terms of envisioning a shared landscape. Why don't we go and visit that? Like, why don't we go in and visit what indigenous nations and indigenous people had in mind in context to my region before you go and, you know, lead like, you know, a civil war <laughs> or, or whatever you're, you know, you're gung-ho about. Um, but ultimately, yeah, like that's one of the big thing that, things that is obviously overlooked on all sides of the political spectrum is to prescribe to Indigenous people how we should govern or, or how we're going to sit at their table. But again, you look at decolonization, hey man, we're over here with our table and you're telling us to jump out of our canoe and get into yours? No, that's not cool. <laughs> so then what would a post-colonialist society look like, or at least one that is sensitive to the post-colonial struggle yeah for sure so like when we're looking at i guess in my region of treaty six territory we're not like you know some people argue some people theorize and say well maybe we should go with like a nation state model and things like that but you know a lot of um indigenous people tend to critique the nation state model because we don't know necessarily if that was even one of our creations or one of the things we had in mind um, because obviously there's some problems that come with the nation state model, like Westphalian nationhood, you know what I mean? Like Westphalian sovereignty and things like that out of that whole paradigm and philosophy. But for me, a post-colonial society right now on, in terms of uh, the Prairie region was that when we look at Treaty 6 territory, territory, we wanted to share the land. We wanted access to land base and we wanted to have access to creating our own livelihood um, and farming and you know living and sharing on, in this landscape. With, with settlers who are here. So they really, like, for me, post-colonial understandings of how the landscape would look was, well, first and foremost, we have to deconstruct and disrupt the settler access to land that's benefiting from these resources. So there has to be some sort of restitution of landscape and there has to be some sort of restitution of, of our ability to be mobile in our territory again. For people who don't know the term, Westphalian sovereignty is talking about what the, the UN Charter is based around. That's kind of like libertarian within your territory sovereignty. That's basically the UN. Yeah, basically the UN and also coming out of like European paradigm specifically, right? So sort of having tied to like Europe. 
And again, would, would that have existed over here in the Americas? I don't know. I don't have the time machine, but at the same time, uh, we want to create our own projects. And again, that's, that's classic Fanonian, right? Is that we want to create our own political projects and governance systems. And for me, the post-colonial society for, is definitely tied to land back because even Fanon highlights for a colonized people, the most essential value because the most concrete is first and foremost the land the land which will bring them bread and above all dignity. And that ties into autonomy, that ties into livelihood, that ties into, you know, the literal establishment or reestablishment of what we, what we once had that was, you know, abruptly taken away from us as a result of colonialism. So there has to be some sort of like restitution in that area. And um, I always strive for that. Like I always strive for that. Well, let's think about the big land back projects. Let's think about, you know, the political structuring that's going to sort of maintain this sort of decolonial effort. Um, but again, like with neoliberalism and capitalism, you know, those restitutions get translated into currency. We're saying, okay, we're sorry this happened. Let's pay you for the trauma your people incurred. Let's pay you for those rights that you were supposed to get that you didn't get. So, you know, there's settlements, there's legal settlements, things get bogged down legally in in the courts. And for me, that's still a form of colonization and colonialism because it's putting on the back burner the physical project that Fanon calls on, which is, you know, land back, the liberation of land and territory from those paradigms. And I mean, people tend to interpret that as people. And I know Fanon is talking about people, but for me, I like to also highlight that it also means paradigms. It also means how that land is held and controlled. So if we could relinquish or liberate land from legal paradigms, settler colonial legal paradigms, how would that look for us? And for me, that's what I like to dedicate my time and my thought to is how do we get land back and how do we actively protect land? Because again, this has very real, real, uh, real world implications right now with climate change. Right. So like if you look at depth of a plow where our indigenous people here on this territory said, you guys only agree to a depth of a plow. We have to have a conversation because now you have all this mining going on. You have all this agricultural runoff going on. You have all this oil and gas stuff. We didn't agree to that. Right. So if you look at treaty and, and, and treaty six in particular and depth of a plow clause and things like that, that's a really cool environmental policy that could address climate change <laughs> because now you're 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 calling a stop to the industries that are creating climate change. Now you're calling us, putting a stop to, you know, the industries that settlers are benefiting from. And I always say in my lectures, it's like on the prairie, if you fly to Saskatoon and we're going to get get you up here, Sam, to do some work for us. So when you fly into Saskatoon, you're going to see like grids for miles and miles of farm, like the square grids of fields. All that land and territory is ours. We didn't surrender that. And the majority of that land and territory goes to export. So they're literally exporting that to feed the world in many cases. And um, But my people are starving. Like we're still an oppressed people. We're still impoverished. And then if you take a drive two hours north and you see clear cutting, all those trees are going to build homes elsewhere. But we're still houseless in our territory. We're not homeless, right? One of my um, mentors I look up to, Manu Myers out of Hawaii, always says indigenous people aren't homeless. We're houseless. Because we're we're in our territories, we have a home, we have the land base to call home, but we just don't have houses on our land base. So you're still looking at that exploitative of colonialism take place, and you're still seeing settlers benefit from those industries, and um, and it's almost it's a heritage, it's a consciousness, it's like a community consciousness now. So we have to de- we have to deconstruct that to an extent of where it doesn't have the the hold that it has now. And again, you know, having the treaty relationship, because keep in mind, we weren't like, we're not the bloodthirsty savages Hollywood portrays us to be. 
right? We're not going to like, I know young people jokingly say, no, we are going to put people on the boats and send them back to Europe. <laughs> but, but ultimately, like in Treaty 6, Peace and Diplomacy, we're not sending people away. You know what I mean? We're, we're, we're advocating shared existences here under a political project. So long as you live here, that this is our shared existence under this peaceful diplomatic relationship we've established. And here's the thing that liberal capitalists then miss, right? People who think they're on the left, they're Democrats or an equivalent in Canada, they're liberal. But liberalism relies on capitalism and capitalism relies on property and private property. So how do we share when you say this is mine and nobody else can have it? And not only that, I've figured out how to have ownership on all kinds of non-obvious things, like not only ideas, but like air, water, not even things that you could draw a border on, things that are not even tangible, you could create a property around it. And we think about how important that is for Western capitalist society, home ownership, property. If it's that important for you, then what did you just take, right? We even look at horror movies where the plot is about like ghosts in a house and then later it's revealed that the house was built on a cemetery for indigenous people, a sacred burial ground. And it's like, Think about how fucked up that is. Like you took a sacred ground and then you built houses on it. And the moral of all of these movies isn't to give the land back. It's always like, no, 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 nobody should do anything on here. No, no, we're not giving the land back. Just no, nobody build houses, nobody do anything, right? Because that idea of giving the land back, it's almost like even if I don't want it, you don't get to have it either. And that's all part of capitalism as well because the land still has value. So even if I don't do anything on it, somebody owning it still can generate income, still can generate value off of it. So then we should be able to, I guess, in a weird way, recognize that if it's this valuable for us, how valuable was it for the original people? Then how much value are we stealing from them? And the more we want property, the more capitalism is based around property and our want for land, then how much more property and land are we going to take? That's where you're talking about settler society is not settled. They're still taking more property because that is capitalism. It's like an amoeba. It's always going to take more land. It's always going to keep eating more and consuming more. Yeah, totally. I mean, definitely makes sense how you're describing it too. Um, yeah, this this whole concept of land and, it, and, and it, in all honesty, you know, even for me as a PhD candidate and, you know, as a, as a theorist who thinks about these things constantly, it's hard for my brain to wrap around those projects. But I mean, that's the direction that we have to force ourselves in and the conversations we have to have. And and just to keep in mind that, you know, the settler state political project, for somebody to occupy that space has to have some sort of degree of accepting the settler state political project. Um, just like same with U.S. imperialism, right? To serve in the U.S. government system, you have to sort of be okay with some sort of aspect. You have to be okay with U.S. imperialism on some level. You have to okay, be okay with empire on some level. And that applies in Canada with, you know, settlers who say, well, I'm going to go in there and change the system from within and we'll bring you to the table and we're going to have these conversations. But then ultimately at the same time, everything's measured in currency. Everything's measured in capital. So that private property is not going to be relinquished. We're just going to pay you for the use of it, so to speak. So yeah, all these rights that you talked about in your treaty, we're going to sort of just translate that to currency. We're going to translate that to capital and here you take it now don't bring it up anymore um so yeah those projects are still actively in play under like neoliberal capitalism and 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 under the settler states today it's still actively played and you know when you're looking at just the, the presence of you know indigenous people being more educated 
around those Western beliefs and paradigms, a lot of people tend to reinforce those discourses. So, so we have to be really mindful of who's sitting at the table and why are they sitting at the table? Are they land-based Indigenous practitioners who are sitting there coming at it from a very real concern of the environment and really need access to, to traditional territory? Or are they like somebody who's been educated in Western legal paradigms who's sitting there to negotiate? Because um, those are two very different discourses that are taking place right now actively in the Americas. An activist friend said this to me, skinship is not kinship, meaning even if you're of the same color, you don't know how they're approaching the table. Are we for the same project just because we look the same or where are you coming from, right? These are things you have to navigate and you have to know. And again, that, that applies to settlers too, you know what I mean? Is that like the social democrats or the liberals may not necessarily have the exact same outcome that <laughs> that they don't have the same outcome in mind that somebody who may be working with indigenous people have in mind, or they don't have the same outcome that indigenous people who are seeking justice have in mind. So there's going to be these clashes of paradigms everywhere you go. And I find like it's really hard for people to identify paradigms. Like it, there's almost like this, this concept that we have to be respectful. We have to be understanding and accommodating, but no, straight up like colonial paradigms and settler colonial paradigms, they're violent. Like our land is literally being degraded and we're definitely losing people. Like there's a high increase of suicide in, in indigenous communities in, in the wake of colonialism and colonization. And I get really turned off by the awareness campaigns because, you know, the colonizer knows full well we're dying. And Fanon talks about that. There's quotes where he says, you know, colonialism knows full well the impact that it's, it's playing out. And so we don't have to convince them otherwise. <laughs> you know what I mean? And They're not doing it accidentally. Exactly. And, and people have to be mindful of that. And that's where the settler decolonization comes in terms of their psychology, because they have to keep in mind the system they're investing in is carrying forward those projects, right? Even just the fact that they could get jobs in those projects, and it's going to sustain their livelihood is really problematic, because now you're getting a check at the cost of my people in my lands. Whereas we're not getting that, whereas we're the ones suffering of the, the fallout of that. Like I have a lot of, I mean, I work in mental health also. I do a lot of work with indigenous communities in that way. Um, I have a really hard time with settler social workers because, you know, child apprehension is a very real issue in Canada where the colonial projects being carried forward from the era of residential school to the literal apprehension of indigenous children still. Um, the number of indigenous children in care um, is way higher. It exceeded the number of Indigenous children who are actually at residential school. So that's still a very real project. And there's like, you know, waves of people who are getting social de work degrees who aren't aware of decolonization, who tend to think that social work's apolitical, but it's not because it's tied to that settler colonial apparatus. So we have to really be mindful of those paradigms that we assume are true and we have to just be mindful that, you know, they're tied to very problematic systems. And again, thinking systematically, thinking in terms of paradigms is really important. Like, it's super important. I think if I, like, if I could just do work around settler um, systems and paradigms to educate young people as opposed to doing social work or Indigenous studies classes, I would, because that's, that's sort of like what we have to hit home now in the era we're living in. So something you've been bringing up is how important Fanon is from a psychological standpoint for Indigenous people, in particular, internal decolonization. So can you talk to us about that more, this internal decolonization work? Yeah, so for me, I mean, the reality with colonial violence is that it is, it's going to create trauma. There's going to be trauma, there's going to be um, um, memories that are unpleasant, 
And we have to process that. We have to dive in and do that. And for me, you know, being the the, the son of, of mental health therapists, um, I was really mindful of that at a very young age where we have to have conversations around, you know, um, the type of communication styles we're doing, what's acceptable and what's not, what's toxic and what's healthy, um, type things like that. So this internal decolonization is really unpacking a lot of the emotional baggage we carry that is the result of colonialism and for us in particular um like for my family system there has there was a lot of um emotional baggage around parenting because a lot of our grandparents only learned how to parent in residential school so it wasn't like the best parenting styles that existed in some family systems and my father and my mother had to really deconstruct and dive into well how do i parent my children like what's positive, what's healthy, and what's what's negative and what's toxic. And there's still a lot of young people today, my generation, who are reinvigorating traditional parenting, traditional family systems, because we have to go back to that and figure out those things and um, operate from the place of understanding those things. So that decolonization exists more so, I feel, in the level of like um, emotional intelligence and the level of um, social relationships and interpersonal relationships with ourselves. Um, and, you know, some people have a very real surface level of decolonization. Like they think it's just a matter of like switching your clothing or switching, you know, your hairstyle or, or learning physical things. But Fanon was even critical of that. Like, like there's this tendency in Canada or there's a tendency right now in general where there's a lot of land acknowledgments that take place in some territories, or like in particular universities are, are notorious for doing this, where they'll have an Indigenous person dressed in Indigenous traditional clothing, um, welcome people to the traditional territory and acknowledge the traditional land. That's really superficial and surface level stuff. Um, and Fanon talks about, you know, he talked about how dancing for the colonizer or, you know, doing these cultural displays to the colonizer um, isn't going to convince them otherwise. But for some reason, you know, it's almost like these simple, superficial um, image based iconographies that take the forefront over this more interpersonal internal conversation around decolonization of not i'm not concentrating on how i look per se like i'm not concentrating on my traditional hairstyle i'm concentrating on how i'm thinking and how i'm thinking in relation to somebody who's viewing me um, those are two different things and again i think you know decolonization got a bad rap early on because people just felt like oh well <laughs> go back and live in teepees and that's real decolonization or you know um grow your hair out again and, and get your traditional hairstyle that's decolonization but you know Fanon was really critical of that he was more so thinking about those psychological interpersonal communal things um that that give us the self-esteem we need to carry forward those decolonial projects so for me that's what decolonization is and that's how it exists internally is having those conversations with our family, with our communities, or around how we operate and how we function. Because even that, like we sometimes we didn't even have the liberty to sit down and have a conversation because of colonialism, right? Even in just like Western culture, like how many settler families are sitting at the dinner table um, having conversations around their interpersonal relationships amongst each other? Um, because I mean, we had a podcast where one of my, co- my students decon- uh, highlighted how settlers have this work ethic where they're supposed to be constantly working and he noticed in their family systems they don't even have these internal conversations with each other because they're so busy carrying forward that that like proletariat work ethic right and um you have to be working till your back's broken you work from day till night and till you're dead 
And he said that really like limited the emotional intelligence conversation. And yeah, so for me, like emotional intelligence, interpersonal skills with family and loved ones, all that stuff is a decolonial act. That's where we have to dedicate a lot of energy to. Yeah, that Protestant work ethic that people adopt. People who aren't even Protestant, who aren't even wasps, just adopt it because it becomes the social fabric. Even like that type of like Protestant, very strict, conservative Christian parenting. What do they say? Roll with the iron rod or some kind of like abusive stuff. I would say even non-white immigrant families buy into that idea that traditional parenting is that rough, mean parenting. When they got all those ideas from boarding schools from their country, right? Boarding schools in India, boarding schools in Korea, or they were influenced by these missionaries because it's like two generations deep. They think that's how traditional parenting was. And it's like, no, I mean, there could be more stern aspects of it, but you never know. You don't know because everything we got is from this type of colonialist perspective, even if you're not indigenous, even me from Korea, because of all the missionaries that have come over, the U.S. military that has come over is like, is what I think of traditional Korean parenting of like spanking the hell out of your kids. Is that really us or is that something we've learned? And also not only that, but because we did it out of fear that if you act the wrong way in this type of society with the U.S. military around, they might kill you. Or you have to do things the right way to survive in this system where there's like not enough rations for us anymore because we're living post-war. So everything has to be meticulous and perfect. Otherwise, you might die because everything has to be accounted for. There's no room for slip up. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and having those conversations and unpacking that stuff is is a form of decolonization for me. And I think we have to position that um, again because Fanon and rest of the earth got a bad rap because that first chapter concerning violence, people it scared people. It scares people, <laughs> and especially scares people if someone's colonized coming at it from like colonial trauma, being abused or being in a residential school, or you know, and and actually experiencing police violence or violence from um, the the colonizer. So they don't want to touch that. Right. And even today, like in, in current um, mobilizations and things, we still have people who show up and say, oh, we should um, we should actually sit down or what are you guys doing? You're crazy because they're going to they are going to arrest you or it's just disrupts their comfort zone to the point of where they're not willing to even um, compromise on the belief that white people are boss and we just have to accommodate what they're telling us to do. This is the new colonialism. So just get comfortable type thing. You know what I mean? Um, so people have to unpack those conversations and, and having those conversations is a decolonial thing. And again, you know, that's not, that doesn't exempt white people. Like white families have to have these conversations. Like for me as a first year instructor at a university, I always challenged my students once we did the colonialism portion to go home and deconstruct or disrupt Thanksgiving. And some of them would, you know, some of them would, and they came back to tell me how that went. And it went great because, you know, they, they disrupted Thanksgiving and they were forced to have very hard conversations. But some of them even identified the fact that, no, it's not a safe place for me to even try that project because there is violence there. There is abuse there. There is, you know, a lot of problematic um, work ethic concepts and, and, and social constructs that aren't safe. And, you know, they, they wouldn't do it in good because you don't want them to, to, um, get abused or anything like that. Um, so yeah, this conversation is really important just in terms of, you know, internal dialogue and family dialogue and, and, and deconstructing what we view as, as the norm in some cases. For indigenous people or even just non-white people, 
there's an extra psychological element that isn't addressed by Western psychology because Western society is the cause of the psychiatric issue, which is the struggle of fitting into white society or settler society when you're not one of them and you're acutely aware you're not one of them. Mm -hmm. So building on that, settler society will medicalize mental health issues for indigenous people or sometimes even for non-white people. And in the past, they did this for women. And so for indigenous people, they'll say, oh, alcoholism and suicides are high because of some genetic defect or some type of medical explanation like that, rather than some kind of political explanation, right? Rather than looking at how the oppressive nature of being colonized on your own land harms people mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Yeah, totally. Like, like that's that I, there is some people who are doing work on being more trauma informed and how social work and mental health isn't necessarily, um, taking these, you know, conversations into account. I think I just made a Facebook post the other day where I said, we tend to assume mental health is apolitical, but for indigenous people, it's not like literally like the best way you could help somebody's and um, emotions are, are their trauma, help them resolve trauma and, and develop some sort of like emotional resiliency and intelligence is just to highlight what colonialism has done to the family system and to the people. And once they become situationally aware of that, then of course they can navigate the world better place. Of course they could position the settler, they could position um, the colonizer. And in that act of being able to position and, and put labels to the world and the chaos we're living in, it's liberatory. It's liberatory because now they can navigate it better because there's a panoramic view of the system, systemic oppression that exists towards us. So then those narratives about being an alcoholic or being a toxic person or having this poor mental health, is buying into those narratives what internalized colonization is or part of internalized colonization? Yeah, I mean... For, you're definitely on point with saying that like the Western medical health position, um, profession tends to um, label a lot of these things as sickness or deficiencies and things like that. But, but for me, like from my paradigm and my understanding, a lot of the chaos and a lot of the issues people face is a result of unresolved trauma. Um, and I experienced this just in the work that I do, especially even around um, alcoholism is, is, you know, obviously being a coping mechanism um, for, for trauma and for, you know, co colonial violence that has taken place or literally the disruption of the family system and things like that. Um, and so, like, when we have conversations around, like, doing issue work, we literally mean doing issue work and, like, diving into, like, why am I the way I am and where does this stem from? But doing that from the perspective of not just literally, like, listening to story or, you know, even prescribing um, medication for those types of issues. It's, no, it's literally unpacking and deconstructing a lot of those traumas that exist for us. So like for me, for example, one of my big issues, ironically, like if you look at it in context of my career path now, um, was the, was I had issues with being a native kid who was labeled and stereotyped as somebody who shouldn't be able to be write good, who shouldn't be able to write English good. So one of my main issues I had as a kid growing up um, was the fact that, you know, I was accused of cheating on essays and that, the assumption there was that this native kid can't write this type of essay. And for a while there, that was a very big impact for my life because it's like, well, I'm not going to write anything now. 
well, I'm going to, I don't want to read and write anything because, you know, it's easy for me. It came easy for me, but you know, they're just going to say, I'm a, I, I shouldn't be able to do that because I'm native. So like that core driver, my emotional driver in those situations was the direct result of me not literally unpacking that whole um, issue I had with my teacher, like my grade eight teacher or something. And that sort of almost determined my life to the point of where I completely walked away from reading and writing. But luckily, you know, having my father and my mother and things like that, sort of um, me being able to navigate that and dive into that as, as an issue from this perspective of like a grade eight kid, right? A grade eight kid who put in a lot of work into this essay to pass a class, who cited his work, um, who did it in APA format because my mother was doing her master's at the time. Uh, so she had a manual on how to do APA format. So me, I just picked up the manual and formatted this, you know, grade eight paper and submitted it. And then, you know, getting called to the office to say, who wrote your paper for you? For me, that was a big traumatic event for me, right? Because coming at it from the perspective of being like this innocent kid who just wants to read and write and enjoys it. And it was an awesome learning exercises, got labeled as a cheater. And carrying that for a number of years through high school really impacted my ability to succeed in those systems. But then, you know, unpacking that, diving into that, doing some issue work around that, then suddenly just like, you know, flourishing and doing my undergrad, my master's and now a PhD. Um, that's an example of like how issues could really limit our potential and how we have to dive into um, issue work and, and unpack all those things that limit us. And again, I mean, that's a surface issue. That's a sort of safe issue for me to talk about publicly. But again, some of these traumas, they go beyond something like that. They could be very violent. They could be very abusive. And again, that's really hard work to do. But again, decolonization requires us to do that type of work. These narratives, like for you, letting go of that narrative of you being a cheater, that's internal decolonization. Yeah. Letting go of these like negative ideas about yourself, where it's essentializing you, where it's like fixing people in a point and saying, that's just who you are mm -hmm. and saying that, no, that's not who I am. That's internal decolonization work as far as going to trauma work. For some people, it might be like letting go of like this idea that indigenous people are inherently abusive or alcoholics or suicidal or any of those things. Those are like harmful narratives. And those then, I guess, would be internal colonization and decolonization work is learning how to like address that trauma. How did you form those ideas and how do we let that go, right? From a psychological standpoint, that is the internal decolonization. Yeah, like like another standpoint to better understand this is is simply around like uh, dealing with loss. So obviously, in 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 oppressed societies, we deal with a lot of loss. We lose we're losing people a lot a lot, you know, to um to suicide, to alcohol and drugs, to the system in general. Um, there's a lot of disruption of our family systems to the point of where even grieving is a privilege that's not offered to some people. Um, and healthy grieving in general. So like it's tied to emotional intelligence just simply by navigating and even processing the emotions we're feeling, like even putting a name to those emotions. Like for example, in a very colonial situation of residential school, children weren't allowed to cry, right? Like physically you weren't allowed to even shed tears because that, that would have been met with very violent oppression. Um, but for us today, now we have the liberty to begin to navigate our emotional intelligence and develop, you know, healthy ways of processing our emotions. So for me, like uncovering like my own emotional intelligence around colonialism and 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 even um, even just disrupting my own rigidity around colonialism, um, just in terms of you know being overly aggressive 
towards the colonizer are being overly um, um, violent to the colonizer, I definitely had to sit and do some process work around emotional intelligence. And again, like, like that's an aspect of even culture, right? That, that, that is, isn't really recognized in even the Western world, that emotional intelligence has to happen in family systems and on the personal level, because, you know, people are ultimately, whether or not they want to recognize it, are operating from a level of some sort of relation, emotional relationship to an issue. This is the end of part one of my conversation with Mylan Tutusis. There's a lot to unpack here, and I really encourage people to sit and process this episode. Maybe listen to it more than once. Share it and have conversations around it, and do your own internal decolonial work, especially if you're not indigenous. Assign it, make it homework, maybe listen to it with others, and do a discussion group. If you have kids, have them listen. Make it more than just passive listening. I also recommend that you pick up The Wretched of the Earth and start with the case studies. Also read the introduction by Jean-Paul Sartre. I plan to release part two in the coming weeks, but if you don't want to wait, it's available on our Patreon. Sign up and support us, not only to listen to the rest of this conversation, but because this project really needs your financial support to survive and keep growing. Episodes like this are very important, and very few outlets do what we do. This might sound obvious, but sometimes it needs reminding that doing important work takes time and money. This is not a hobby I can do for free on the side. This is an immense project. This is work. So help us. Help me if you can. I'll include links to Mylan's podcast and his social media in the show notes, along with information about supporting us. South Pauls. Hidden with the left, South Pauls, Sam, Paul, South Paul, South Paul.